James was very honest this morning. Where's James? He said he was grumpy. But then he came into the house of the Lord and he began to worship and things changed. Are they still okay, James? Even better? Let me take you to another guy who felt exactly the same. Psalm 73. I'm going to read it in the New Living Translation. And uh, m many of the Psalms are by David. This is by, by another man called Asaph. But it makes no difference, really. Psalm 73, verse 1. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those whose hearts are pure. But as for me, I came so close to the edge of the cliff, my feet were slipping and I was almost gone. For I envied the proud when I saw them prosper despite their wickedness. They seem to have such a painless life. Their bodies are so healthy and strong. They aren't troubled like other people or plagued with problems like everyone else. They wear pride like a jeweled necklace, and their clothing is woven of cr cruelty. These fat cats have everything their hearts could ever wish for. They scoff and speak only evil. In their pride, they seek to crush others. They boast against the very heavens, and their words strut throughout the earth. And so the people are dismayed and confused, drinking in all their words. Does God realize what is going on, they ask? Is the Most High even aware of what is happening? Look at these arrogant people, enjoying a life of ease while their riches multiply. Was it for nothing that I kept my heart pure and kept myself from doing wrong? All I get is trouble all day long. Every morning brings me pain. If I had really spoken this way, I would have been a traitor to your people. So I tried to understand why the wicked prosper, but what a difficult task it is. Then, one day, I went into your sanctuary, O God, and I thought about the destiny of the wicked. I'm pausing there. We'll look at the, some of the other verses later on, but um, that's the turning point in the psalm. Here's a man with a grudge a grudge against God. God, why is it that these no-good people have all the fun, all the money, have a great life, and we who try to follow your way, we get all the rough stuff? It's not fair. Anybody identify with that? Jeff has just reminded us, and thank you for that, Jeff. We live in a world where millions are struggling even to stay alive because of poverty, famine, natural disasters, governments that oppress and persecute. And in the last 18 months, COVID has added a huge extra layer of misery for millions and millions of people. And the cry goes up, there just cannot be a loving God who allows all this to happen. Or if there is a God, a loving God, why doesn't he intervene? It's a natural human response to say, we want answers. We, we want to get a hold of the situation, don't we? We want to see things as they really are in their true perspective. 
the truth which so many can't accept is that in this life we won't get all the answers. Some things just don't conform to human logic. But we know, do we not, that there is a bigger picture. And if you want a title for this morning, it is, there must be a bigger picture. Because that's where faith comes in. Like Job, who suffered hugely, I have to take it on trust that through it all and over it all, God knows what he's doing, and God really is in control. Can we accept that? Part of the problem, the, uh, the answer to the problem of suffering is, of course, man's, mankind's bad choices. It started in a beautiful garden, perfect environment for human enjoyment and fulfillment. And in that garden, God placed a man and a woman created in his image and said, there you are, enjoy, be fulfilled. And he gave them the freedom to choose how they would live. That's because he's a loving God. He did not create robots who would automatically have to obey. But he said, no, I give you the choice. You can love and obey me, or you can choose to go your own way. And sadly, we know they went their own way. And the consequences were devastating, not just for them and for every generation of their offspring, but also for the planet on which God had placed them. He had planned to cover the planet with people who would freely love and obey him. And everything in the garden and all the gardens would be lovely. Uh, Genesis 3.17, to Adam, God said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. So it wasn't just human beings who would suffer. It was the planet, the ground. And we see the evidence of that increasingly, of course, with climate change. The Bible in Genesis begins with a perfect environment. It ends in Revelation with a perfect environment where heaven and earth, a new heaven and new earth, are united. But everything in between is subject to decay and disease and death. It's a sorry picture, isn't it? Well, it isn't really, but we have to face the reality. But another strand of the reality is that to every generation, God has promised that His grace and his power will enable mankind to come through the very worst that life can throw at us. If I try to figure it out on my own, with human logic, I am doomed to failure and frustration. But if I can find a place of quiet trust in someone who has himself been through the worst and come through victorious, then I will be able to see a greater measure of the bigger picture. I, I may not have all the answers, I certainly don't, but I will be able to see God at work in wonderful ways. In the 38 years of the life of the community church, we have faced the reality of people 
overcome by disease and a number of people, of course, have died in the course of 38 years. That would only be to be expected. Um, it's perhaps easier to come to terms with, though no less sad, if the person has reached a good age. But we've lost loved ones who were nowhere near three score years and ten. I think of Alan Stoddart, I think of Frida Kelly, I think of other people as well. Just recently, our friend Ezekiel, who leads the church over in Oldham, lost his sister in the prime of her life. And uh, he put it on Facebook, simply these words, too soon, sister, too soon. And with the psalmist, we might cry out to God, why, Lord? Why? We don't understand. Well, we must always remember that with all the wisdom and all the revelation that men and women have received over the centuries, we can never fully understand the mind of God. That's the simple truth. There will always be an element of mystery with God. And he is the one who sees the whole of the bigger picture. And we believe that he's in control of that bigger picture. He's the Alpha, he's the Omega, the beginning and the end. He has got galaxies to look after. And that reminds me that I'm actually not the center of the universe. It's good to realize that, isn't it? Look up at the stars at night and just remind yourself, I'm not the center of the universe. There are dimensions of eternity which we simply cannot see or comprehend. And yet, my Bible tells me that this God, this awesome, amazing creator and sustainer of life, as we've been reminded, uh, became man so that he could endure the very worst of suffering that this world could throw at him. And therefore, he appreciates how we feel. He knows our suffering. You remember the words in 1 Corinthians 13, uh, the old version says, we see through a glass darkly, or um, in other versions, we see things imperfectly, as in a poor mirror. Or the message says, we're squinting in a fog, peering through a mist. Um, the Greek word there is enigmati, from which we get the word enigma and enigmatic. There is a puzzle, a mystery, an enigma. We cannot know all the answers. And it's at that point that some people head off in the wrong direction. They perhaps read Isaiah 40, verse 15, which says, All the nations of the world are nothing in comparison with him. They are but a drop in the bucket, dust on the scales. He picks up the islands as though they had no weight at all. <laughs> so if whole nations are like dust... How important are we in the grand scheme of things? The psalmist says elsewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or again in Psalm 115, verse 3, our God is in the heavens, and he does as he wishes. And some would at that point shrug their shoulders and say, well, that's your God. He's remote somewhere that you call heaven. He's unaffected by suffering people here on earth. He just does whatever he likes. Well, that's not the whole story, is it? 
Those of us who've been parents will know that there are times when parents make decisions for their children which the children don't like or understand. Can we identify? Do I get an amen? <laughs> Lots of amens, of course. How often have we heard the cry, that's not fair. And yet, because we love our children, we want what's best for them. If we're wise, we stick to our decisions, even when it makes no sense to the children. Let me take to Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 is often quoted to show how heroes of the Old Testament uh, lived lives of victorious faith in all kinds of adverse circumstances. But there are two points in that chapter, one part way through and then again at the end of the chapter, where the writer points out that all these wonderful people could have had good reason to be disillusioned and disappointed with God. They could have cried out, it's not fair. Um, in verse 13 of Hebrews 11, the writer, he's already mentioned Abel, Enoch, Noah, and Abraham. And he says, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. Ah, now there's a clue as to the bigger picture. We're not meant to cling desperately on to life here and now because actually we're aliens and strangers. There's somewhere much better laid up for us. And then at the end of the chapter, after he's mentioned a whole mass of people, uh, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses' parents, Moses himself, Israelites crossing the Red Sea, Israelites marching around Jericho, Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, all the prophets, and a host of other people unnamed. After he's listed their exploits, this is what we read. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. The implication that I take from that is that they had an inkling that there must be a bigger picture. And they persevered in their faith even though they couldn't see the whole picture. And Hebrews 11 ends with this. Uh, I, I've got it in the New Living on the screen, but I'm going to read it in the message version. God had a better plan for us that their faith and our faith would come together to make one completed whole, their lives of faith not complete apart from ours. If you want to see a bigger picture, you need to look at the whole, the broad sweep of God's kingdom rule in all its aspects through the scriptures. And it's something we've been looking at, isn't it, over recent months. God's kingdom rule, what life is like or will be like when God's rule and reign are fully established here on earth, and then see our own lives in relation to the millions of believers across the centuries and down the generations. That's how you can see the bigger picture. You get a grasp of kingdom reality, of kingdom culture, as Harry mentioned it this morning.
we get some idea now to keep us motivated. We don't see the whole picture. We don't see God healing every single person that we lay hands on. But we do see some. And it's as if God is saying, look, enjoy the blessings you've got now, but I want you to trust me, if you will, and believe that there's something even better further on. And in that case, are you willing to accept that along with the blessings, you will have problems, you will have suffering? You will, Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. That's the reality. And that's where faith comes in. After my Gwen was given a, a diagnosis of motor neuron disease, there was one scripture that she found particularly difficult. And I struggled with it as well, I'll be honest with you. Romans 8, verse 28, familiar to many. The New Living Translation says this, We know that God causes everything, 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 to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose for them. And Gwen's question was, how can motor neuron disease work for my good? And it was a good question. I won't go into all the detail of what she went through, but it was pretty horrific. Um, but how could all those nasty things, I mean, there were good things along the way as well, don't get me wrong, but how could those nasty things contribute to anything that could be good? Well, I've quoted Romans 8.28, but whenever you quote a text, what is it? You, you mustn't take a text out of context or it becomes a pretext. That's the one. Um, so if you look at the... <clears throat> I mean, Romans 8 is a fantastic chapter, as you probably know. In, uh, in my Bible, um, Romans 8.28 starts uh, a section, the heading of which is more than conquerors. So that's a good place to start. So maybe there are clues here about the bigger picture. And sure enough, verses 29 and 30, Paul writes, God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son. It's the son we've honored and respected and reminded ourselves of the sacrifice that he made so that his son would be the firstborn with many brothers and sisters. And having chosen them, he called them to come to him. And he gave them right standing with himself, and he promised them his glory. Now that seems to me to raise things up several notches on the measuring rod, if you like, of the heavenly realms. All things, whether good things or bad things or ordinary everyday things, are somehow being mixed together and molded around my life and my character so that I can become the person that God knew before I was born. And did you notice somewhere in the mix there's a chunk of glory? That's good. Perhaps I can illustrate Romans 8, 28. All things, all things, all things. I've got some things here. Um, 
I've got some eggs. Uh, would anyone fancy just eating an egg like that? Me neither. Um, how about some self-raising flour? A good dollop of that. No? no. Obviously not. Um, and some icing sugar. A bit too sweet. Well, there's a man there who wants some icing sugar. See me at the end. And a lemon. Not really. No. All these things, personally, if I took those as they are, they would make me choke. And probably you as well. But put them together in the right proportions, using a recipe from someone who knows what they're doing, and you find that all things do in fact work together for good. And you can make a very tasty lemon drizzle cake. <laughs> Some of you have seen that already on Facebook. Um, incidentally, if you don't believe in miracles, there is evidence. It's the first cake, the first cake I have ever made in my life. So there you go. Um, incidentally, Romans, just to go back to Romans 8:28, after Gwen had passed away, she had the last two weeks in the hospice. And after she'd gone, a few days later, God specifically said to me, I want you to write down the good things that have come out of that last week or two. And I did. And I wrote 17 good things that came out of that experience. And I will keep that list. In this life, we will never have full understanding. We have to face that fact. But my question is, do we really need full understanding? I'm not sure that we do. Um, I wonder if anybody here has a full understanding of what electricity is and how it works. I haven't a clue. Well, I've, I've got a few clues, obviously. I don't understand it, but I will happily stick plugs in sockets and use it. Not a wet finger. Plugs. Uh, there's a plaque on the front of John and Julia's house in Scaresbrick. Many of you will have seen it, which neatly distills what I've been trying to say this morning. It says this, My father, I do not understand you, but I trust you. And that's what we need, isn't it? Not a full understanding, but a total trust. And if you can say that with conviction, you're in a good place. And you're on the way to an even better place. I started with Psalm 73 and I said we'd come back to it. The psalmist spends the first half of the psalm battling with the unfairness of life. And we stopped at the, the key point, the hinge, if you like, of the whole psalm. Uh, in some versions, it's the word till or until. In the New Living, it was then one day I went into your sanctuary, O God. And that's the turning point. He enters the sanctuary and he becomes aware of the overriding and overwhelming presence of the living, loving God 
and his perspective totally changes. He sees things in a new way and he even realizes what does happen, the final sad destiny of those who scoff against God. Let me just read you some of the verses towards the end of that psalm. He comes to the point where he can say this, Yet I still belong to you. You are holding my right hand. You will keep on guiding me with your counsel, leading me to a glorious destiny. Whom have I in heaven but you? I desire you more than anything on earth. My health may fail, and my spirit may grow weak, but God, but God, but God remains the strength of my heart. He is mine forever. And on the end of that, my heart says, Hallelujah and Amen. <laughs>